Thank you for taking time to listen to this Redemption Church sermon. Redemption Church exists to make authentic disciples who live for the glory of God and the good of our world. We want to help everyday people wake up to a deep, meaningful life in Christ. We pray this sermon will help. For more information about Redemption Church and for additional resources, please visit redemptionokc.com. on the things above, not on things of this earth. For you have died and your life is hidden with Christ in God. When Christ, who is your life, appears, then you also will appear with him in glory. Put to death, therefore, what is earthly in you, sexual immorality, impurity, passion, evil desire, and covetousness, which is idolatry. On account of these, the wrath of God is coming. In these you too once walked when you were living in them, but now you must put them all away. Anger, wrath, malice, slander, and obscene talk from your mouth. Do not lie to one another, seeing that you have put off the old self with its practices and have put on the new self, which is being renewed in knowledge after the image of its creator. Here there is not Greek and Jew, circumcised and uncircumcised, barbarian, Scythian, slave, free, but Christ is all and in all. This is the word of the Lord. Thank you, Megan. Well, it's Megan Redward, Colossians 3, if you've got a Bible, I'd love for you to turn there. And we're going to be in this passage for another couple weeks. We actually got a prayer and worship Sunday next week, and we're going to spend some time singing, praying these things, but then we'll be back in this text the week after that. And uh, we're doing a deep dive there for reasons because we feel like that just there's so much in life that's hard to figure out how do we live this out? How do we actually take the stuff that we've been taught that is true of us and how do we put it into practice? And this is one of those passages that really delineates this is how it is that we can live this stuff out. So we're going to dive in just a little bit here. And several years ago, I was with a group of guys, and we were a little bit younger back then, and starting out in life, and had young families, and we're hanging out. And these were guys I looked up to and respected an awful lot, and uh, in this Bible study, and they were leaders, and they were people that we looked at as successful, and just having a conversation. I remember looking at them and just asking them a few questions. Said, uh, you know, do you have how many of you guys have a career plan? Like you kind of know what your trajectory is and how you want to move up the ladder or what you want to do and where you want to end up and kind of what your path is of what you want. And, of course, all the guys were like, oh, yeah, I got that. I know exactly what I want to do. I know where I want to be down a little further in life. And I said, what about a workout plan? Do you have a workout plan? And they're like, well, I don't always do it, but I have a plan. And, you know, I've got a diet and I've got, you know, some some workout. I'm trying to keep up with my cardio. And But they all at least had an idea of something they were trying to do. And I said, oh, what about vacation? You got vacation plans? And the guy's like, dude, I'm going to Cabo. And the guy's like, going to Breckenridge on spring break. And they had these plans for this hope of what they wanted to do with their vacation that was coming up. And then what about retirement? And they're like, I don't know if I'll ever get there, but I'm trying to like put back a little bit and save enough that I don't have to work till the day I die and have a retirement plan some, somewhere out there. And 
It's like, that's good. And I said, well, tell me about your spiritual life plan and your spiritual growth plan. They all just kind of looked at me like, am I supposed to have one of those? I'm like, well, seems like you might want one. And so we began to just talk about this. And, you know, the, the fact is, if I ask any of these guys, what's the most important thing in your life? And this Bible study, they would have said, God, God's the most important thing in my life. He said, well, what's going to last longer than everything else in your life? I'm like, well, it's spiritual stuff. Spiritual stuff's eternal. It's going to last everything. I'm like, well, don't you think if you plan, for, plan ahead for vacations and you plan ahead for getting in shape and you plan ahead for your career and plan ahead for your retirement and all that stuff's going to go away, you might want to plan ahead for the stuff that's going to outlast all those other things? And they said, yeah, maybe we should. And so we began to talk about that. That's really the, the idea behind what Paul was saying in Colossians chapter 3 is you're headed somewhere. Your life is eternal. Your life is more than just the stuff that you have down here right now and all the earthly stuff that you're walking through. In fact, in verse 3, we saw it said, when Christ, who is your life, appears, you will also appear with him in glory. But you're headed for a place with him in glory. Second uh, Corinthians 3.18 says, we all then, with unveiled face. So right now, we see kind of through a veil. So you kind of get a picture of what God's like. You get a picture of what eternity is like, but you don't really see the real thing. You just kind of get a a foggy mirror, like looking through one of those bathroom glass things, like you see a shape through there, but you're like, God, I don't see more than that there. But, but eternity, you wish you could see with clarity. It says, one day with unveiled face, we'll behold the glory of the Lord, and we ourselves are being transformed into that same image of God from one degree of glory to another. But this comes from the Lord, who's, who's the Spirit. God is going to make you look like and right now, it's hard to imagine that to be true. But one day, you'll be blown away by what you look like. In fact, C.S. Lewis years ago wrote a deal called The Weight of Glory. It was an essay or a sermon that he wrote. And in that, he talked about kind of how amazing this reality would be. L look at the person sitting next to you or down the aisle from you real quick. Just like actually look at them. Any of you tempted to worship the person next to you? I mean, those of you that are married are like, yes, of course, I worship this person. But... You married a little longer, and you realize, like, maybe not worship, but I love them dearly. Uh, but the reality is you look at the person next to you, and you don't, they don't look like someone you think you're going to worship. What C.S. Lewis said was, if you understood what God is going to do to the person that's next to you, to your brothers and sisters in Christ one day, when he makes them like Jesus, and they no longer have this old earthly body, but they've been given a new glorified body, and they're bearing the image of Christ, and they're reflecting his glory, and they're shining and radiating with the glory of Christ you would be tempted to worship them because of all that God has done in them. Friends, do you understand that's where you're going? That's what your destiny is. That's, that is what is most true of you right now in Christ. And if that's true, would we not then want to begin to live aiming at that, pointing in that direction, even now? That's what I want us to look at today, that if we don't have a vision for what we will one day be in glory, we're a lot likely to commit to becoming more like Christ day to day, day by day right now. But if you understand where you're headed and the beauty of that, then you're likely to start shifting your perspective now away from the earthly thing towards those things which are above. So last week we were looking at this passage. We focused mostly on the first four verses. And what we're going to see today is in verse 5, we really pick up where we left off. And so Verse 5, continue, Paul is going to continue kind of the logical argument he's been building. So he built the argument in verses 1 to 4 of our position in Christ, who we are, what's already true of us because of who Jesus is and what he's done for us. 
these are the things that are true for you positionally right now. Verse 5, he's going to begin to turn and say, but you have to learn how to work those out experientially. So you have to take that which is true of you and learn how to unpack that and work that actually into your life and move it from theory into practice as you move forward. Verse 1 and 2, he says, seek the things that are above where Christ is. Set your, that's your heart, that you're supposed to set your heart's affection on the things that are above. Set your minds on the things that are above. So fix your mind on those things, not on the things on earth. Then in verse 5, he says, therefore, because you belong to heaven, because that's what's most true of you, put to death what is earthly in you. Friends, the spiritual growth and our sanctification, our movement towards maturity in Christ, always comes with these kind of twin commitments that we have to get rid of some old stuff and we have to put on some new stuff. And those two things always go together in terms of our own spiritual development, what we're about. This is what we're about as Christians. We constantly are having to redirect our minds from the earthly stuff up towards the heavenly stuff, away from the stuff down here and up towards the stuff that looks more like Christ. In fact, I'm going to kind of give you a quote that's almost impossible to understand on the first read, so I'll unpack it for you. But an old Puritan that's just got some deep stuff that I want to read, a guy named Charles, uh, Thomas Chalmers. He says, it's seldom that any of our tastes are made to disappear by a mere process of natural extinction. Got that? That was easy, right? Let me just unpack that briefly. Um, our tastes, our desires, the things that we want, the things that we hunger for, the things that we thirst for, he says it's not likely that those are just going to disappear, like that they're just going to go extinct. What he's saying is your heart is made to worship. Your heart always goes towards something. You don't ever just turn the spigot of your heart off. It always wants to attach itself to something else because it's created to worship and give itself to something else. And so it's not just going to stop feeling things or stop desiring things or stop worshiping things someday. It's always going to want to do that. He says the heart must have something to cling to, never by its own voluntary consent, where it so denude itself of all its attachment. Uh, everyone just say denude real quick. Isn't that just a fun word to say? Like, that's just a weird, strange term. But what it means is you're not likely to take off the clothes that you were given naturally. You're going to have to be taught to do that. It's just this is something you're going to do. And so we're attached, our heart is attached to things, and it's not likely to release those things that we've grown up learning to love. But if your whole life has been cultivated around taking hold of certain things, you're not naturally, willfully, without some outside help or intervention, just going to release those things and move on to something else. We have to learn a different way. Friends, every heart worships, and we can't turn off our hearts. We can only redirect what our heart is aimed at, which is what Paul's saying. He's saying you have to redirect your heart from the earthly things to that which is above. We have to learn to redirect or refocus or recalibrate our hearts. That's why Paul gives us this image in verses 9 and 10. He's going to go down, or really through this whole section. He gives us this image of putting off some things and then putting on some new things. And it's an image of clothes. They were to put off our old clothes and put on our new clothes. And that day, uh, when Paul was writing this letter to a group of people in a town named Colossae, and he was sending them this letter, they didn't have print books. They didn't have uh, book, digital media. They didn't have way to, ways to, to log on and listen to a podcast of the sermon later. So they were really focused on trying to give you really clear images that when they would walk away and they go back to their blacksmith shop or to their fields where they were shepherding or farming or whatever it is that they would do is they would go back to their home or shop in the marketplace, that they would take the message that Paul had given them and say, oh, if Jesus has changed me and given me a new life, I should put off the old clothes of the way I used to do things and put on Jesus' clothes that tell me what new life really looks like. And they were meant to understand that. In fact, 
uh, and I'm going to warn you before I get there, just to, just maybe alleviate your 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 fears. We're we're not going to put this practice in, uh, but in the early church, oftentimes when they did baptisms, they would actually baptize men in one group and women in a different group, and they would take the men and they would go in and they would actually physically take off their old clothes and step into the water, and then they would be baptized, and then they would come out and put on a new robe that symbolized the new clothes of Christ that they've been clothed in. Um, not going to do that here. You don't have to get naked to get baptized. Um, but we will give you a T-shirt, and we'll let you put that on, and that's about as far as we're going to get to that. But, but it's likely that Paul was taking that image from baptism and saying, just like in your baptism, you had to lay down your old life and died with Christ, and in his resurrection, you were given new life in him, and you were clothed in his righteousness, you were clothed in his holiness, then you need to live in such a way too. So put off the old stuff and put on the new. Now, ironically, I think for us, we don't live in a world like they did where they had such little information and books and, and, and digital media and all these other things that, that they needed a simple thing just to take away so they could remember it. We actually have a different problem. We have so much information in the information age that we can't sift and sort and navigate all the stuff that's coming in our brains. We're constantly having things in our ears. We've got things on our stream of our, uh, of our digital feeds. We've got things that are coming at us so fast. There's more books printed year by year than there were in all of history before. Like we are overloaded with information. So I want to encourage you to take a simple image like this too. And maybe help, it, help, help you focus and sift all the junk that you hear and say, man, I bet you there's some stuff I need to put off. I bet you there's some stuff I need to put on. That's where Paul is really going to lead us in the story is understanding this idea of what does it mean to put off and put on. Let me tell you a story that um, captures a little bit of this, and this is from one of the most difficult 48-hour periods of my family's life that became hilarious later, but in the middle of it was not hilarious at all. Emery's laughing because she's like, which one is it? I know lots of these, but uh, when you think about uh, our <clears throat> this situation, we were actually moving from one house to another. I hate moving. I told my wife I may never do it again. You may put me in the ground before I do it. I shouldn't say that out loud, but I don't like moving. And we were moving from one house to another. We've got four kids, three animals, and all the stuff that goes with all those things. And so to have to pack it up and move is just a whole lot. And we were moving into a house. And the day before we moved into the house, one of my kids went to a party, came back with head lice, got all of us uh, lice on all the animals, which meant we all had lice. And so now that's in our new house. So we've stepped in our new house, haven't unpacked anything. We've all got lice. We realize it. We have to go to the place where you pay an exorbitant amount of money for them to clean you and get rid of your the lice and your animals, the life of you and all that stuff. And they finally tell us, they said, look, if you just don't go home to your house and there's no living animals in the house, for 48 hours, all the lice in the house will die and you'll be fine. Okay, we can't go to our new house on day one uh, because we're, you know, it's lice infected too, so we have to go somewhere else. Fortunately, my parents were out of town for like nine or 10 days. I'm like, okay, that works out. We'll go to mom and dad's. We'll stay there for a few days. Let all the lice in the old house die. Then we'll go to the new house and it'll be fine. Uh, we got to mom and dad's house, and it was hot, the heat of summer. Uh, their air conditioner died that day. So now we're sitting there trying to get rid of the lice, can't go to our house, can't use all our stuff, can't, kids don't have their toys, don't have anything to do. And we got no AC, and we're burning to death in this house. And then to make matters worse, um, Mike, my son, takes Ranger, our golden retriever, out for a walk that evening. And as he walked around a corner, comes around this big pine tree, and the skunk goes, throws his tail up, sprays Mike, sprays the skunk. Mike doesn't know what to do. He just knows it stinks. He runs home, immediately runs in the house, lets go of the dog, screaming. The dog, the kids run up, grab the dog. What's wrong? What's wrong? And the dog rolls around in my parents' hardwoods, rubs up against all the stuff. Skunk smell everywhere, and we're all covered in it. So now we're lice-infested, skunk left. Can't go home in a house with no AC. 
And this is where we are. Uh, Ann goes to the store, buys the new set of clothes. She buys the cheapest thing she could find. She's like, I don't even want to put your actual clothes on you because it might like, it might ruin them too. And so we're going to have to do that. We do like all the things. We're calling friends. What do you do for this? We're Googling it, YouTubing it. Do all the things. It's like 3 in the morning. We're finally going to sleep. And we're laughing because Nan had bought like the cheapest pair of gym shorts and T-shirt that you could possibly get to put everyone in. And as Nan and I are finally, we've got the kids all squared away. We're finally like trying to scrub clean and everything else. And uh, she goes to put her clothes on and realized that she had bought little kids' sizes for herself. And so she's like, you know, doing one of these with these like tiny little clothes that are way too small for her, but they're the only clothes she has. And we literally are like on the floor laughing and crying about how funny it was. Why do I tell you all that story? You don't want to keep your skunky clothes. Like, no one had to tell us that we needed to get rid of our skunky clothes. When we took the skunky clothes, we literally went out to the trash and we're just like, be gone forever. I don't ever want you back. I don't want anything to do with that. And even though our new clothes weren't really fancy or really nice yet, and they didn't look quite like they wanted, they were way better than the old clothes. What Paul's saying, friends, is you need to get rid of your skunky clothes. Why would you go dig those out of trash and put them back on? That's not the stuff that you need. You need to put on the new clothes, which is why in verse 5, Paul says, um, put to death what is earthly in you. Take the old skunky stuff and just be done with it. Reckon it. Consider it as dead to you. That stuff's not alive to me anymore. It's dead to me. It's not mine. And he's not saying put your bodies to death because God made you and you're good. But the evil way that you sometimes use your bodies for sin, those things are deserving of God's wrath because the harm they bring to all humanity. God made you to flourish. God made you for glory. And when we choose things that are skunky clothes, we diminish what God has done for us, what he's given to us. So we need to put those to death. An old Puritan, John Owen, said, be killing sin or sin will be killing you. It means you have to put it to death. Otherwise, it's going to do harm to you. And friends, <clears throat> what scriptures teach is that when you were given new life in Christ, the dominion and power of sin over you was severed forever. You no longer are a slave to those old things. You no longer have to obey those old ways. You can choose to put them to death. You can choose to put them away. You can also choose to put them back on but you're no longer a slave under the dominion of those things. But we have to do battle with our sin in the here and now because our lives exist in two spheres at the same time. Spiritually, we belong to Christ. We're hidden with him in God, already seated at the right hand of the Father. That's our position. But physically, we're still living here on earth, which means we have to decide which realm we're going to live for. Are we going to live for what's above or are we going to live for what's below? And we have to make that choice. And in that, and we decide which, which realm we're going to give our lives to. And as long as we live in this present age, that means our life is going to be, we're going to experience struggle. We're going to experience this kind of tug of war. Because we're going to have to decide to put off the old, put on the new. And we're going to walk in that, in that place. Verse 7, he actually says, in these two you once walked when you were living in them. Uh, what Paul is saying is, we're all sinners. None of, us, none of us walk through this life without brokenness. None of us walk through this life without struggle. None of us come into this room without any baggage or any stuff. We all wore old clothes. He says the fact these used to walk in them, what he means by that is these were the things that typified your life. We all were like that once, living in, in that realm. So no one's without sin. No one's without a history. And yet, what the Bible is saying is that faith in Christ will change you. And you can choose to set those things aside. You don't have to live enslaved to those things anymore. Paul wants us to find this kind of freedom from all sin, but he actually gives us two specific sins he's going to give us examples of, and they're 
very, very personal. One is our sexuality and the other is our speech. Uh, there's neither of those uh, move very far from us. They feel very close, don't they? The way in which we talk, the way in which we express ourselves sexually. In fact, he gives five words for sinful expressions of sexuality. He says sexual immorality. The old translations call that fornication. It actually comes from the term porneia. You think of a word in our world that sounds a little bit like porneia. It comes from the same root of that term. It speaks of any sexual misbehavior or inappropriate sexual relationships outside of God's design for our enjoyment of the beauty and goodness of the gift of sexuality. Sexuality is a gift that God has given, but we misuse it. We use it inappropriately. Why it's sexual immorality. Impurity is a kind of a wider, the way that term is, or what that term refers to is kind of a wider range of sexuality that speaks not just to the physical actions, but you notice it carries with it an internal character. What he's saying is when we live out in these ways and act out in these ways, it actually can contaminate us on the inside, and there's an impurity that comes with it as well. That develops itself into a passion. Moves from improper acts to improper attitudes. Our emotions and our affections are driven by a hyper-desire for sex. And we see that in our world, don't we? It's not hard to look at trailers and movies, to look at things that are out there, and you see a hyper-desire for sex. It's no, not hard to find uh, the troll accounts on your social media feeds, that there is a hyper-desire for sex that they're enticing us for. Calls it evil desire, desire that's been bent by sin, to want sex that is not whole and healthy. And then the last word he uses is kind of an interesting one to us. He says covetousness. And some people look at that and say, well, that feels like a different category than the other than the other four. But really these are groups of sins. And he probably is talking about covetousness within the realm of sexuality. In fact, if you think of the, uh, the uh, Old Testament, um, the Ten Commandments say, you shall not covet your neighbor's wife. What it means to covet is that you want something. You, you, you want something more. Uh, more power, more money, more position, more fame, more family, more anything. But in the realm of sex, it's saying that you want more sex or better sex or different sex or sex with someone who's off limits to you. It's speaking of those who are not content with the sex that God created them to enjoy, but they approach it transactionally as those who want more and more of a good thing that's never satisfied. This is what I think Paul is trying to get us to understand when he says this. The problem is that we want... um, is, is, the problem here isn't sex, though. You understand that God came up with the idea of sexuality? God created us male and female. God created nerve endings. Nerve endings came from somewhere. They didn't, just, they didn't just spontaneously happen. But God created you with tactile feelings and nerve endings that, uh, that, that can be stimulated, that can be enjoyed. And sex was meant to be this intimate, enjoyable expression of relational commitment and togetherness. The problem is, that humans have not just wanted to enjoy sex as God intended, but have used it beyond the boundaries that God set for it. Fire is great in the fireplace. Fire is dangerous when it gets out of the fireplace and ravages the whole house. It's meant to be lived within a certain boundaries, and we've seen what happens that in our world where we want more sex than, than where we put more weight on sex than it was meant to provide. We want it without maturity, without commitment, without boundaries, without limits, without relational covenant. And when we express it that way, what we've seen is that it devastates human flourishing in our world. I don't have to give you the stats or tell you the stories for you to know the harm sexuality's caused in many, re- many regions and places in our world. Our culture says that your desires are determinative of your, of your identity. Friends, can I just tell you, the Bible says that you're way more than your desire. You are mar- your personhood can never be encapsulated by something so small as sex. 
All people are made in the image of God and made for more than your temporary desires. Friends, you are more complex and more mysterious and more beautiful and more wonderful and more glorious than you could ever imagine. God has made you for so much more than our culture gives us credit for. And beyond that, your belief in Christ gives you a new identity. You're no longer attached to the earthly things, but you're now seated at the right hand of God. You're free from the old and there's now new that is coming. And so Paul is saying that we need to set those things aside and not give ourselves into this earthbound approach of living because you're made for something even higher. So friends, you notice what Paul says at the end of that verse. He says uh, that this is idolatry, that when we act in these ways, these are actually idolatry. What is an idol? An idol is, uh, Tim Keller says, anything that is more important than God, anything that absorbs your heart and your imagination more than God, anything that you seek to give you what only God can give you. Friends, when our desires, when our worship, when our hearts attach themselves to something other than God, they become idols that demand our attention and our affection and become the controlling element of our lives. They become the thing that we build our lives around. And only God is meant to fill that spot. That's why Paul says these things must be put to death. Not that we do away with sex, but that we put away with the worship of sex, the control of sex, the inordinate use of sex, and for our own mere pleasure. But friends, here's what I want you to know. Because all of us walk in. When he says such, uh, all of these things were things that, that we all did and we all walked in these ways, we all have broken, and we all have sexual brokenness as well, and we need to lay those things aside. But what Paul is also saying in this passage is that your past is not a prison that will hold you forever. Your, strugg- your struggles in the past do not determine your future. Your desires and your feelings are not your destiny. Uh, scriptures talk about self-control, and what we see is that sinful desires are rebellious dictators that need to be deposed and overthrown. That those desires are dictators that, that Jesus has already broken us free from. We no longer have to submit to them. It's why verse 8 says, Put them all away. We are we're to cast those things off. Throw away your old clothes. They don't fit it. They don't fit anymore. The life that you've been given. So verse eight, he shifts gears and goes away from sexuality and begins to talk about our speech. And I know that feels less threatening, but we probably sin in this way at least as much as we do in other ways. It's uh, incredibly painful to think about. But our words can hurt as much as they can help. They can tear down as well as build up. They can speak truth as well as they can speak lies. Um, we need to be careful with our words. And what Paul says is we need to hold our words carefully because they're things that, that can be used for good, but they can also be used for evil. He uses five terms for sinful expressions. He says anger. Those are harsh words spoken against another. Quick temper. And it speaks of wrath. Wrath is outbursts of anger that blast away at someone. When you want to pour out wrath with someone, you want to annihilate. Like you want to blow them up is what, what the idea, the expression there is. Some of us grew up in homes like that. And it's made us fearful of re-entering relationships, re-entering different places. We lived in homes that were typified by anger, by wrath. Malice is desiring another one's harm or downfall or misfortune. Whether we say it or think it, and we look at someone and say, I hope something bad happens to them. I want mal, uh, I desire mal uh, intent for them. Slander, that's trash talk either directly or covertly, but we're talking trash about someone else and trying to cut them down and, and slander them and misspeak about them. Obscene talk from your mouth, that's foul language and other stuff that, um, that discredits and, or dishonors kind of the way in which we live. Friends, when you think about our words, it's not hard to, for us to think about the damage that words do. Just consider your schools. 
bad things have happened at school or consider what happens online. We seem to think if it happens through our thumbs, it doesn't really count. People just start, you know, blasting away at something online like it doesn't matter. We think about our marriages and our relationships and the words and the way in which they're used, used to cut. Also, need to keep those in check. In fact, James says, we all stumble in many ways. If anyone's never at fault in what they say, they're perfect, able to keep their whole body in check. He's like, if you got this little thing under control, you could probably control anything. At which, what he's saying, it's sort of tongue-in-cheek literally there. He's saying, like, you're probably not doing that well. You probably need some help. Uh, what's, what's Paul's point? He said he, God wants our wholeness and he wants our holiness because he wants us to flourish. Which is why he turns in verse 12 and he says, put on then as God's chosen, holy, chosen ones, holy and beloved, compassionate hearts, kindness, humility, meekness, patience, bearing with one another. And if anyone has a complaint against one another, forgiving one another. As the Lord forgave you, so you also must forgive. And above all else, put on love, which binds everything together in perfect harmony. And let the peace of Christ rule in your hearts, which you indeed were called in one body and be thankful. Let the word of Christ dwell in you richly, deeply. We're not going to spend as much time on this one. We're going to actually get to this in a couple weeks, and we'll unpack that and what that looks like in our relationships with a broader world, but also then we get to the rest of chapter 3, and we're going to actually talk about what it looks like in parenting and marriage and work and in our relationship with our neighbors outside of this, and all of these things are supposed to be unpacked in that way. But I just want to point out the, the start of, that, of verse 12. It says, put on therefore. So therefore, if there's things that need to be put off, we also need to put something else on because uh, we don't ever take something off without needing to be reclothed with something that's better. And so we take off that which is old and we put on the new. Put on then as God's chosen ones, holy and beloved. Uh, Paul goes back to our position in Christ. He reminds us, that is, you've had to set aside the old. You need to remember who you already are in Christ and then begin to put on stuff that looks like the appropriate attire for those who are in Christ. Put on stuff that looks like Jesus. In fact, every one of those words, the compassion, kindness, humility, meekness, patience, bearing one another, forgiving one another, uh, putting on love over everything that holds it all together, all those things, if you look through the rest of the scriptures, are actually characters of God, characteristics of God. Uh, they're mentioned elsewhere throughout the scriptures that these are things that are said of our God, of our Lord. And so we're, we're put on clothing that looks just like him. And our obedience flows out of our position as children of God. Friends, do you understand who you are in Christ? You're beloved of God. He loves you. So much that he sent his son for you. You are the, you're his chosen one. You're the ones that he looked out through all eternity and says, I'm going to make you mine. You're going to be my child. You're going to be my son. You're going to be my daughter. We're the chosen of God. We're beloved in him. It's interesting. He says holy as well. But we're still having to put off the old and put on the new. We're not holy in and of ourselves yet, right? But he calls us holy because of Christ. Because you've been hidden in Christ, you've been put on his righteousness. His righteousness has been imputed to you. So when God looks at you, he says, you're holy just like my son because you're covered and hidden in Jesus. So you need to understand your position. This is who you are. You are chosen from God. You're holy in Christ. You're beloved in him. Therefore, put off skunky clothes. 
put on your new clothes that look like Jesus. Don't we want a world that's typified by those things and not the other list? This is who we're made to be. Now, if you're kind of looking through this, you're like, okay, Jeff, I get it. Like, we need to put off the old, put on the new. Um, how? It's usually the question you get at this point in the conversation, right? Verse 10, Paul is going to tell us how. He says, therefore, put on the new self, which is being renewed in the knowledge, in knowledge after the image of its creator. Friends, how do you how do you do this? You can't. That's the short answer. You're not strong enough. You're not good enough. You're not powerful enough to do this. You can't. But God in you. So you have to be renewed. Allow the Lord to do this. I love what Augustine said in his book Confessions, his prayer. He says, Lord, give what you command and command whatever you will. What he's saying is, if you give me the power and the strength and the grace to do it all, then tell me to do whatever you want and I'll go ahead and do it. But don't command me to do something you're not willing to empower me to do because he understood that unless God somehow does this in me, I'm not going to change myself. That I'm not going to let go of the old voluntarily unless God changes my eyes and my perspective, unless he changes my sight of what the good life is and my understanding of the way the world works and what is really of most value. But if God does the work of changing me and allowing me to see things differently, then I'll begin to operate in a different way. It's interesting, this new self that we have now, he says it's, it is being renewed. That's a present passive verb, which means that, that it's happening right now, that it is, you are being renewed right now by Christ, but it's something that you receive passively. So it's happening to you. It's nothing you can do for yourself, but I'm being renewed by God now, in the right now moments um, through Christ, being renewed in knowledge after the image of his creator. When it says after the image of his creator, he's talking about what God intended and he created you to be. In Genesis 1, uh, 127 says, God created man in his own image. In the image of God, he created them, male and female. He created them. God made us to look, to bear his fingerprint. We're to carry his glory and to be like him. And so he designed us for that way, and that's what we were to be about. And yet that image has gotten tainted by sin. It's been broken, and he's rebuilding. And so that renewal, we're being renewed into the image of Christ. What's going to happen one day? We're going to look just like Jesus. We're going to be glorified. But it also happens in knowledge. Ephesians 4 says to be renewed in the spirit of your minds. Romans 12 says do not be conformed to this world, but be transformed by the renewal of your mind. The battleground in which we fight this oftentimes is right here. It's in our hearts and our minds. We have to set our minds on the things that are above. We have to seek with our hearts the things that are above, as it said in verses 1 and 2. We're to constantly redirect our minds there. But friends, it's not easy, is it? Because we still live in this world, and though our position is up here above with Christ, we still walk down here in the stuff of earth, and we have these temptations that call to us. And so the invitation for us today is to take what Paul says seriously and say, I want to put off the old skunky clothes of my life, and I want to put on the new Christ clothes that he's given me, and I want to begin to look more like Jesus. And in the battle of that, what you have to know is it's going to be a struggle. There's going to be temptation. There's going to be things that happen until you go to be with him, until Jesus comes back and makes all things new, until he glorifies you. We're going to live in this world. So he says in 2 Corinthians 4, so do not lose heart. Don't give up. Though our outer self is wasting away, our inner self is being renewed day by day. For this light, momentary affliction of life in the here and now is preparing for us an eternal weight of glory beyond all comparison. 
as we look not to things that are seen, but to things that are unseen, for the things that are, un- that are seen are transient, for the things that are unseen are eternal. Friends, in a world that prefers the quick fix, the life hack, the four easy steps to total fulfillment, the medicated answer to alleviate stress, but we're those who stay faithful. We just keep coming back to Jesus. Say, Jesus, would you just do work in me? Shift the affection of my heart to the things above. Shift my mind's attention to the things above so that I might put off stuff of earth, put on stuff that looks like Jesus. Friends, here's where we're going. We can't do that on our own, but God said that he who began a good work, he will continue to perfect it until the day of Christ Jesus. He will perfect. He will continue to do the work. We're just to continue to position ourselves under him that we might be renewed. First John says, Beloved, you are God's children right now. Hear that over you. Beloved, loved by God. You are God's children right now. And we are not yet what we will one day be. But we know that when he appears, we will be like him because we will see him as he is. That's good news. Let me pray for us. Father, I pray that you would just do the work in our hearts by your spirit. Show us the stuff that we need to lay down because it's not going to lead us to real life. Father, would you, would you convince us to put on stuff of, of Christ that we might look more like Father, may all that flow out of the reality of our position in Christ. Dear beloved, that we are right now sons and daughters. Because of that, may